there are no limits to the depth to which the nuclear industry will sink in order to manipulate the public into supporting its technology and the masses of money that it makes. So when you hear... I think what the French authorities have done is diabolical. They have organized workshops on radio protection for secondary school children in France. Japanese school children reading PowerPoint presentations to French school children and making statements like this. We don't have to worry about radiation in Fukushima. This is such an obscene manipulation of children, particularly when we consider that these young ambassadors of the nuclear industry are possibly future victims of the accident and of its cover-up. When you hear information like that and understand the ugliness of propaganda programs created and sanctioned by the nuclear industry in order to protect its interests, you start to understand that you are in the seat we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a new extended interview with Allison Katz of Independent WHO, the group that opposes the World Health Organization's overt manipulation of the data regarding the Chernobyl and now the Fukushima nuclear disasters. Included in our talk will be information on how to receive a free PDF download of the milestone book Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. This week's program was supposed to be a feature on the International Uranium Film Festival, a special incorporating the filmmakers, films, audience members, issues, and networking that took place at this remarkable event, which started out in Window Rock, New Mexico, and is still happening throughout the Southwest through the middle of December. Unfortunately, with more than 30 interviews to edit, I was unable to get that done on time, so we are reprising this exceptional interview with Allison Katz. Know that next week's program, Nuclear Hot Seat number 390, will be the feature from the International Uranium Film Festival. For now, we'll have Numbnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information then the United States will be prepared to listen to at next week's COP24 meetings in Poland, where the issue of global warming will be discussed by all sane nations. All of this will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, December 4th, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear information from a different perspective. And it wouldn't be nuclear hot seat without... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of the week. 
The Environmental Protection Agency, a phrase which in and of itself is becoming more of an oxymoron every week, has just said that higher radiation levels pose, quote, no harmful health effect. Well, isn't that special? That means that in the event of a dirty bomb or a nuclear meltdown, emergency first responders can safely tolerate radiation levels equivalent to thousands of chest x-rays. This despite the fact that a 2007 version of the same document stated that no level of radiation is safe, concluding the current body of scientific knowledge tells us this. Oh, but these are new days, and who cares about science anyway? Certainly not the EPA, especially when they are weakening radiation safety levels established during the Obama administration to 10 times what was previously deemed acceptable. Daniel Hirsch, the retired director of the University of California Santa Cruz's program on environmental and nuclear policy, said... It's really a huge amount of radiation they are saying is safe. The position taken could readily unravel all radiation protection rules. Gallingly, the APA cites radiation levels that are considered safe for external contamination, but make no distinction about internal contamination, where a single speck of, say, plutonium in your lungs guarantees lung cancer. The EPA has never before said that any level of radiation exposure is safe, according to Jeff Rush, executive director of the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, a watchdog group. Rush linked the EPA's scientific views on radiation exposure to the skepticism of EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt that humans are the main contributor to climate change. He said, I knew that under Scott Pruitt, EPA is in climate denial. But now it appears to be in radiation denial as well. This appears to be another case of the Pruitt EPA proclaiming conclusions exactly opposite the overwhelming weight of scientific research. And the current head of the EPA, Andrew Wheeler, has done absolutely nothing to change that position. The EPA said in an emailed statement, although current science suggests that there is some cancer risk from any exposure to radiation. It is very hard to tell whether a particular cancer was caused by very low doses of radiation or by some other source. They always duck behind that argument. Rush said he was concerned the document signals that in the event of a Fukushima-type nuclear meltdown, the EPA would allow public consumption of radiation-contaminated drinking water. And he concluded... Dr. Strangelove is alive and lurking somewhere in the corridors of EPA. And that's why, EPA, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, you know what I'm going to say here. Nuclear Hot Seed needs your support to meet its monthly financial obligations. Now, whether you choose to make a one-time donation of any amount or a monthly sustaining donation, it all helps to keep honest, verifiable nuclear information flowing out to you, the listeners. Even $5, the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista, will help us meet our costs and help keep the program running. So please, give what you can. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click 
on the big red donate button. Or if you want to buy the show that metaphoric cup of coffee every month, you can quickly set up a monthly $5 donation by clicking on the big green donate button. Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. One of the most popular and oft-encored, as well as ripped-off, nuclear hot seat interviews is with Swiss sociologist and psychologist Alison Katz. She dissects the World Health Organization's pro-nuclear lies in the agency's reports on Chernobyl and Fukushima. The original program aired most recently on episode number 305 on April 5, 2017. If you haven't listened to it already... There's a reason why it's so popular and gets repeated so often. Now, I'm delighted to present a new interview with Allison Katz, who continues to work with independent WHO. This is the Geneva, Switzerland-based grassroots movement set up by a collective of associations and individuals to dissect the history, politics, and manipulations of the United Nations World Health Organization in its reporting on the health impact of Chernobyl and now Fukushima. Allison worked inside the WHO for 18 years and now is a leader within independent WHO. Today's interview is a nuclear hot seat exclusive to discuss how the nuclear industry has buried and discredited the world's most important collection of scientific studies on the health impact of Chernobyl, Volume 1181 of the New York Academy of Sciences. Alison Katz, it is so good to have you back here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, Libby, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Tell us about Volume 1181. Volume 1181 of the New York Academy of Sciences represents the most comprehensive and up-to-date collection of evidence on the health and environmental effects of Chernobyl. Among other things, it contains unique, valuable data from the three most affected countries. So that is Belarus, Ukraine and Russia. Data from countries of Western Europe, many of which were seriously contaminated, and, and that is a fact that has been ignored, and indeed data from all over the world. It's a huge tome. It's got more than 800 references. It draws from 5,000 studies from all over the world. It is really the essential resource on this subject for those who seek independent, serious and reliable scientific and medical evidence on this subject. So obviously it's a publication that represents a very serious threat to the nuclear establishment. It was entirely predictable that it would meet with violent criticism. In fact, it's a small miracle that it was ever published. And it was published by a venerable institution, the New York Academy of Sciences, which is quite a coup. Yeah, yeah. The fact that it was published by the New York Academy of Sciences has certainly made the book particularly threatening to the nuclear establishment. It's really much, much harder for them to dismiss than books published by Greenpeace, for example, however valuable these are. The nuclear establishment has had to use some really dirty tricks to misrepresent and discredit Volume 1181. But these tricks, although they're despicable, they're also very easy to demolish. The major dirty trick consists of the absurd and false claim that the New York Academy of Sciences has in some way disowned its own publication. How has the nuclear establishment backed up that claim? 
Well, an unusual statement was, in fact, issued by the NYAS, that's the New York Academy of Sciences, when it published the book, probably in anticipation of violent criticism from the highest authorities. Establishment critics have seized on two sentences from that statement. This statement, by the way, is still on the site of the NYAS, and it then quoted them very selectively. And these are the sentences. It says, I quote, in no way did the NYAS commission this work, and it has not been formally peer-reviewed by the NYAS or anyone else. And by quoting these two phrases and ignoring the rest of the statement, critics have misrepresented the position of this venerable institution. So I'm going to quote a bit more from this statement in order to set the record straight about why the NYAS published Volume 1181. And I'm quoting now from their statement. The New York Academy of Sciences believes it has a responsibility to provide open forums for discussion of scientific questions. The Academy is committed to publishing content deemed scientifically valid by the general scientific community, from whom the Academy carefully monitors feedback. So, and end of quote. So far from disowning volume 1181, the New York Academy of Sciences is saying that it published the book in the context of its commitment to open discussion of scientific material and to the publication of material of scientific value. It seems clear to me that, in fact, what you have just quoted from the NYAS is defending its decision to publish. So let's move on to what you cite as the second major dirty trick by the nuclear establishment, which is to claim that volume 1181 on Chernobyl is of low scientific quality. Yes, this is dirty trick number two. And I have to say that, in part, the NYAS is responsible for inviting this completely unfounded criticism, because it said that the book had not been peer-reviewed. Now, this is a very misleading statement, because books are not peer-reviewed in the sense that is intended by these critics, and that is based on articles published in peer-reviewed scientific and medical literature. In this sense, the fact is that the NYAS publication is of very high quality, and incidentally of much higher quality than the nuclear establishment's own flagship report entitled The Chernobyl Forum, which was published by the United Nations in 2005. Now, we were so outraged and astounded at this criticism that we, that's Independent Who, Health and Nuclear Power, that's the group to which I belong, we undertook an analysis of the proportion of references to articles published in peer-reviewed scientific and medical literature in the respective chapters on mortality in Volume 1181 and the Chernobyl Forum publications. And the comparison is as follows. In the NYAS book, there are 112 references of which 46 are published in peer-reviewed journals. Now, that makes just over 40%, which is a very respectable percentage. In the Chernobyl Forum, in the chapter on mortality, there are 11, 11 scant references. Yes, scarcely worth calculating a percentage, of which two are in peer-reviewed journals. So that makes just over 18%. Note also that five of the 11 references were from one author and two were personal communications. It's really a pretty poor percentage. So just to recap, because this is a very important point, the book to which we are referring from the New York Academy of Sciences has 40% of its references coming from peer-reviewed journals, whereas the Chernobyl form, which is the 
report that is cited as being the one that the nuclear industry relies upon, and that was published by the United Nations in 2005, there are only 11 references, so it's just barely 18%. And much of that is not really scientific information, because you're saying that one is from the author and two were personal communications. Two were personal communications, but five of the 11 references that were peer-reviewed, they're all by the same author. And incidentally, I mean, I don't want to be too sure of this, that, that author is somebody that WHO counts on in the nuclear establishment. So it's really pretty, pretty pathetic. I want to just be very clear with the readers. That's from one chapter, one chapter in the book. We couldn't possibly have looked at 500, 600 references. So we just did the chapter on mortality, which is a pretty important chapter. So if those percentages are representative of the two books as a whole, what does this say to you about where we should be looking for our information, our vetted, reliable information about Chernobyl? Well, it's a very good point, because to be honest, the critics of Volume 1181 should be much more concerned about the competence of the International Health Authority in the area of radiation and health. As we have discussed in a previous interview, that authority today is not the World Health Organization anyway. It's the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency. Now, that agency has no mandate or competence in public health, and yet the WHO is subordinate to the IAEA in these matters. I think the world's people need to know that there is no competent or credible international health authority today in the area of radiation and health. That is shocking. Now, from what you say, the nuclear establishment, including the WHO, dismiss any scientific or medical information coming from scientists and medical professionals who are coming from countries of the former Soviet Union. Yes, absolutely. If that information emanates from independent sources in those countries, they more or less dismiss them as profiteers or incompetents. It's often suggested that the health consequences have been exaggerated or invented in order to obtain aid or compensation. And that is very scandalous and it's very tragic, actually, when you consider the, 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 terrible, the terrible suffering of those people. And now the exception, of course, to all of that is information from representatives of the nuclear establishment. And that kind of information is accepted by the nuclear establishment itself, of course, uh, automatically without any kind of critical, any kind of discrimination. Now, in relation to any independent research, it is claimed that their science doesn't meet Western standards. Of course, that particular dirty trick is not new, and it has been used shamelessly by the World Health Organization before. Remember that when challenged about not publishing the proceedings of the International Conference on Chernobyl in 1995, the WHO claimed that it only takes into account peer-reviewed studies of the highest scientific quality. Now, 700 contributions were made to that conference, and only 12 were published. Does the WHO seriously want us to believe that 688 of 700 contributions to the conference were of unacceptably low scientific quality? It is all astonishingly arrogant. Remember also that the WHO took no notice whatsoever of reports from its own member states. Data from the Ministry of Health of Ukraine showed that 15 to 20 years after the catastrophe, there was a dramatic increase in mortality in the most affected groups, the cleanup workers, that's liquidators, and populations in the most contaminated territories. Similarly, Russia reported that between 1986 and 2001, more than 10,000 of its 200,000 liquidators had died. 
Now, given that the average age of liquidators at the time of the accident was 33 years, many of these were premature deaths, very, very premature deaths. Nevertheless, the WHO in the Chernobyl Forum persists in reproducing the establishment's ludicrous figure of around 50 dead and possibly 4,000 deaths from cancer in total in the future. And incidentally, that figure remains as their final estimate. It has never been repudiated. Again, this is shocking and horrifying information when one considers how it has distorted our understanding of the actual impact of Chernobyl. It seems that the nuclear establishment can get away with outrageous statements that have no scientific or medical basis. And there is an irony in this dismissal of anything written originally in Slav languages, because scientific standards in the Soviet Union were regarded as among the highest in the world. Yes, they were indeed, before the fall of the Soviet Union. And now, undoubtedly, with the neoliberal capitalism that has been imposed on the population after 1989, and given the drastic cuts in all public sectors, including health and education, resources for academic and research institutes have been substantially reduced. But are we seriously expected to believe that there are no competent scientists or medical professionals in Belarus, Ukraine or Russia nor any decent peer-reviewed scientific or medical journals. No serious studies on the impact of Chernobyl have been undertaken. It is absurd. Also, you have to remember the eminence and reputation of the authors. Professor Yablokov, he's just died, but I think you know that, Libby, was an internationally renowned environmental scientist. He was a government advisor to Yeltsin. And Nestorenko was one of the top nuclear physicists of the Soviet Union. These men were, were giants in their field. Yes, I did know about the unfortunate, relatively recent death of Professor Yablokov, and I was honored to have had the opportunity to meet him and interview him briefly for Nuclear Hot Seat when he appeared at Dr. Helen Caldicott's symposium on nuclear energy back in 2012. In some ways, when critics dismiss volume 1181. They are not just casting doubt on Eastern European science. They are also casting doubt on the judgment of the New York Academy of Sciences. Yeah, indeed. One is tempted to ask them, somewhat provocatively, are you suggesting that the New York Academy of Sciences published volume 1181 by mistake? Well, of course they didn't. I can easily imagine that there was some internal discord over the publication. But the fact is that the New York Academy of Sciences does not publish 300-page tomes by mistake. It will have carefully examined the hundreds of references and consulted Medline and so on and concluded, as they affirmed in their statement, that the book had scientific value. And we were so indignant about the dismissal of the book in general, and in particular of independent research undertaken in the three most affected countries, we decided to take a closer look. We wanted to see if authors of those studies published originally in Russian or any Slav language were researchers who published in the internationally recognized peer-reviewed literature, i.e. in Medline. And that is, this is what we found. We just took two sample pages. Among 17 references to studies published in Russian, 13, and that is 76%, were authors who were cited on Medline. In other words, they were highly reputable and respected. Of course, absolutely. So just to recap, Volume 1181 on Chernobyl, published by the New York Academy of Sciences, has been discredited on the grounds of scientific quality. This is a very dirty trick. 
and it is also a lie. The book is of high scientific quality, according to the scientific establishment's own criteria, i.e. publication in peer-reviewed journals. And as I said, it is also of far higher quality than the flagship report of the nuclear establishment, the special health report of the Chernobyl Forum. The public and our health authorities really need to know that. Now, you mentioned other dirty tricks used to dismiss the New York Academy of Sciences book. For example, it is often described as an English translation of a few studies originally published in Russian. Yeah, this is a prime example of crass misrepresentation. It immediately reduces the scope, the implications, and the interests of Volume 1181. The book contains no translation of studies. Rather, it presents five to 15 line summaries of more than 500 studies reporting health effects from all over the world, notably Western Europe, but even the USA. And that is interesting in itself because America was the least affected continent, but excellent data collection and records in the USA allowed detection of slight but significant increases in certain adverse health effects, even on this continent. What this book shows, as Professor Yablokov states, is that a nuclear accident can contaminate half the globe, in this case, mostly the Northern Hemisphere. It is worth remembering that 57% of the fallout was deposited outside the Soviet Union, and that Western Europe, among other regions, was seriously contaminated and suffered measurable health effects that have been studied and they have been reported. Unlike the UN report, the Chernobyl Forum, Volume 1181, reports on health effects in Western Europe, and this in particular is information that represents a considerable threat to the nuclear establishment. In their reports, no evidence is presented on health and environmental consequences outside the three most affected countries. And even in these countries, it's only dealing with three specific subpopulations. There is no scientific or moral justification for the failure to present evidence on health effects globally. But there is, of course, a simple explanation. Reports of adverse health effects in Western Europe might result in public protest and therefore restrictions on nuclear activities. It is a terrible reflection of inequalities worldwide and how they are exploited. The people of the three most affected countries just don't really matter to the powerful nations. And furthermore, they can be relied on to keep quiet as they live under repressive regimes in general. It has all been very convenient, actually, in terms of the cover-up of Chernobyl. Let's turn now to one of the major controversies, the number of deaths that have been caused by Chernobyl. 985,000 or 4,000? The first is the estimate of the number of deaths from Chernobyl made respectively by Yablokov and Nesterenko in the NYAS publication. And the second is by the WHO United Nations in the Chernobyl report of 2005. Now, 985,000 to 4,000, this is a huge discrepancy. Can it be explained? Yes, it can be explained, and I will do so. I'd just like to make a first remark about the discrepancies. When estimates differ by a factor of 100 and sometimes even 1,000, and these discrepancies exactly parallel the source of the science, i.e. whether it emanates from the nuclear establishment or from independent researchers, it is rather suggestive of a cover-up or substantial underestimation of the risks to health of low-level radiation, or most likely both of those things. The figure of nearly one million deaths worldwide has been widely quoted in relation to volume 1181, but it, it's in order to discredit the book without bothering to understand how the authors arrive at this estimate, 
Critics present it as a demonstration of the non-seriousness of the work. And they are able to do that in part because establishment figures are ludicrously low. About 50 deaths directly attributable to the Chernobyl accident and around 4,000 potential deaths from cancer as a final total. But as I hope to show, when the respective figures are carefully analysed, taking into account what is included and what is not, and when it is understood how the calculations were made, the discrepancy is easily understood. And actually, it is not a large discrepancy. Now, you say that most of the discrepancy can be explained by various gross emissions on the part of the WHO and the nuclear establishment. Are figures that should not be compared being compared? Yes, absolutely. And there are three other major emissions which account for another large part of the discrepancy. The first emission relates to the populations under consideration. In the special health report of the Chernobyl Forum, the WHO considers just three subpopulations of the three most affected countries, Belarus, Ukraine and Russia. To be precise, it considers 605,000 people, no more, no less. As I have already said, there is no scientific or moral reason for failing to consider all populations affected by the fallout, bearing in mind that 57% was deposited outside the three most affected countries of the former Soviet Union. Yavlokov and Nesterenko in the NYAS publication are considering the effects worldwide, and in particular Western Europe, Scandinavia, parts of the Middle East, Turkey, etc. Really, with the exception of Australia, no continent was unaffected. So basically, the population under consideration is nearly 7 billion. So clearly, these are simply not comparable figures. The other major emission that accounts for the discrepancy is that the WHO more or less disallows consideration of health conditions other than cancer, and here almost exclusively thyroid cancer, with belated inclusion of leukemia, and certainly ve certain very carefully defined birth defects. This is despite the fact that it has been known for more than 50 years that radioactive contamination has multiple health effects. Because of its effects on the immune system, every organ system is affected, resulting in increases in all kinds of illnesses. The third major emission relates to estimates of exposure. The nuclear establishment ignores total exposures over time, past, present and future, and in particular it has always ignored the initial massive dose received at the time of the accident thereby hugely underestimating the contamination of populations and making it even more difficult to establish correlations between dose received and observed health effects. The role of hot particles has been ignored, as has the interaction between chemical and radioactive pollution, and in particular in the area of Chernobyl, the effect of thousands of tons of lead used to extinguish the fire. You bring up the question of internal contamination. Ignoring the phenomenon has always led to underestimation, if not denial, of health effects from nuclear accidents. Yes, quite. It is indeed another gross omission. It relates, of course, to the Hiroshima dogma. The fact that radio protection norms are based on what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, i.e. the effects of a massive one-time external dose. Now, this is incomparable biologically to the effects of chronic low-dose internal radiation, which is the concern after nuclear accidents. It accounts for 95% of the contamination from Chernobyl. But the distinction between external and internal exposure was denied for decades. 
It has been recognised now that radio protection norms remain fixed on the wrong model. It has been said by independent scientists that radio protection norms are based on knowledge that predates the discovery of DNA. Even the general public can grasp the major flaws in establishment science. For example, in the current ICRP model, the ICRP is the International Commission on Radio Protection, exposures are averaged over entire populations, ignoring local sources of concentrated contamination. That is about as meaningless as averaging the temperatures of patients in a hospital ward. In the same way, internal contamination is averaged over the whole body, ignoring the fact that energy is deposited at very different concentrations at the cellular and the subcellular level, and the fact that different radionuclides concentrate in different organs. Well, this is about as silly as claiming that you could shoot six bullets into a football stadium and average the effects of the six bullets across all 25,000 spectators. It makes no scientific sense whatsoever. But those are the international radio protection norms. And not only do they offer no meaningful protection at all in the case of nuclear accidents and routine functioning of reactors, but they lead to a gross underestimation and even denial of health effects. So basically, the nuclear establishment is saying, if you find health effects in populations exposed to levels of radiation that we know do not produce health effects, then they must be due to something other than radiation. Yes. The establishment has managed to create what we might call a logical impossibility of health effects of Chernobyl. What they should be saying is this. Having controlled for all other possible factors, if significant unexplained health effects are observed, the possibility must be considered that populations were exposed to higher doses than were reported or declared, and that the effect on health of low-level radiation are more serious than was previously thought, or both of those things. There's nothing unusual about this reasoning. It's standard epidemiological methodology. What is worrying is that, for the most part, the public remains unaware of these controversies. It is terribly important to reject the idea that the general public cannot possibly understand the problem here. You don't need to be either a nuclear physicist or a molecular biologist to understand these things. The public is beginning to understand, for example, the manipulations of the tobacco industry in relation to smoking and lung cancer. They can understand that demanding proof, in other words, the precise mechanism of cause and effect, is not reasonable. There was sufficient epidemiological evidence of a strong connection to invoke the precautionary principle. Well, the same thing applies to internal low-dose contamination. The establishment requires proof of a correlation between received dose and health effects. But this is an almost impossible demand. For one thing, because the received dose will never be known. But you can do it through autopsy. That's what Professor Bandachevsky did. You remember the scientist who was imprisoned on trumped-up charges for conducting such research, and he became an Amnesty International prisoner, and he was released thanks to Amnesty. Now, what Bandachevsky did is this. Through autopsy, he showed correlations between the concentration of radionuclides in certain organs and pathology in those organs. To establish a correlation would require large numbers of autopsies in contaminated regions. Now, this is unlikely to happen. Firstly, it's very expensive. But secondly, and more importantly, the authorities, national and international, they don't want to have proof of causation. It's the last thing they want. Of course, in our view, it should be done. Absolutely. 
let's just go back to that figure of 985,000. How did Yablokov arrive at his estimate of nearly one million deaths from Chernobyl? He did it through extrapolation. And in fact, he proceeded exactly as the World Health Organization itself recommends. In one of WHO's reports, it says this, the only sensible way to estimate those risks is to use extrapolations from observations made in studies conducted among high-dose populations. Well, that's exactly what he did. Why the furor? The estimate of 985,000 is based on extrapolation from epidemiological studies undertaken in various places, mostly in the most affected countries, but also in some Western European countries. By holding constant factors such as socioeconomic status, demography and geography and so on, you can compare the health problems of populations differing only in terms of exposure to low, medium or high levels of contamination. Remember that the estimate of 4,000 potential deaths made by the WHO and the IAEA in the Chernobyl Forum concerns a very small population, 605,000 to be exact. Now that report estimated a further 5,000 deaths among the 6 million people in other contaminated areas of the three most affected countries. Given that exposure levels in the most contaminated areas of the rest of Europe and parts of the Middle East and Asia are often comparable to less contaminated areas of the three most affected countries, it's not at all surprising that estimates of death for the whole of Europe and estimates of death worldwide are in the hundreds of thousands. Now, Alex Rosen did something interesting in 2006. That's Alex Rosen of IPPNW, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He has also been a guest on Nuclear Hot Seat and is a brilliant and articulate representative and also researcher and doctor. Well, he did an interesting analysis of the ICRP's own calculations, which would predict well over 100,000 cancer deaths from a meltdown such as occurred at Chernobyl. He reports that Unskia subsequently corrected this risk factor and published a figure of 11,000 cancers per 1 million man-rem, which would bring the figure of additional cancer deaths due to Chernobyl to 264,000. Now, if you take into account that cancer is only one of the various causes of mortality due to radio contamination, you're already approaching figures that accord very well with the estimates made in volume 1181 and made by various independent researchers. So there is actually nothing astonishing about the figure of nearly one million deaths, which incidentally is the estimate of deaths up to 2004 and will have increased substantially since then. Establishment science is full of contradictions like this, and you very, very often have to carefully examine the reports in full and not rely on the press releases from the establishment, which are clearly there to disseminate a reassuring message to the public, and indeed also to our own national health authorities, who don't care to look closely, and who in most cases know very little about low-dose radiation and health anyway. In relation to Fukushima, many of us imagined that a cover-up would be very much more difficult given the fact that the accident happened in arguably a freer society with democratic institutions and so on. Briefly, does that seem to be the case? Are Japanese citizens speaking out, or is the establishment using similar dirty tricks? I think it is true that the cover-up will be more difficult, and Japanese citizens are speaking up and reporting to anti-nuclear and health and environmental NGOs in the West and so on. On the other hand, the disinformation campaign started from day one, or day two to be exact, with the World Health Organization claiming, on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, that in relation to the accident at Fukushima, there was no public health impact. 
As usual, it's an impenetrable and meaningless statement. But make no mistake, the nuclear establishment has been very hard at work countering any information that might lead people to believe that Fukushima is a comparable catastrophe to Chernobyl and will have lasting and serious effects. In terms of dirty tricks, though, nothing beats the French nuclear establishment. The accident at Fukushima, as I have said, represents a very particular threat because the argument that is usually used just falls apart. They used to say a serious accident couldn't happen in a technologically advanced industrialized democracy, such as Japan, and they have had to be more inventive. I think what the French authorities have done is diabolical. They have organized workshops on radio protection for secondary school children in France. You can see on internet Japanese school children reading PowerPoint presentations to French school children and making statements like this. We can clearly see that Fukushima is safe or we don't have to worry about radiation in Fukushima. This is such an obscene manipulation of children. There are no words for it, really, particularly when we consider that these young ambassadors of the nuclear industry are possibly future victims of the accident and of its cover up. I hadn't heard that particular piece of manipulation. I've heard a lot of them. That is evil. That's a true perversion on the part of the nuclear industry. But given the huge resources that are at the disposal of the international nuclear establishment, is there really any hope of getting the truth out to the general public? Volume 1181 of the New York Academy of Sciences ought to be available in every medical library in the world. It ought to be required reading for policymakers working in the areas of health and environment. It does seem, though, to have been completely discredited. Hardly anyone has heard of it, certainly among the general public. I have some ideas, but first I'd like to know from you, what can be done? Well, when I am very discouraged, I share your view entirely. It is very frustrating to know that this incredibly important collection of evidence is hardly known outside activist circles. The dirty tricks used by the nuclear establishment to discredit and misrepresent the books have been effective. It's terrible. But it is important whenever we can to inform others about these dirty tricks and to publicize the book. Beyond that, I think things are changing. More and more people suspect that they've not been told the truth. Even the editor of The Lancet, Richard Horton, he, following a visit to the demonstrators outside the World Health Organization, he wrote a short piece in which he said this, the whole truth may not have been told, and the World Health Organization has a responsibility to get at the truth, however uncomfortable it may be for member states or related agencies. And actually, that's very powerful, especially from the editor of The Lancet. Two things that come to mind in terms of combating the impression that has been created that this is a report to ignore. The first is that Wikipedia, which is, alas, one of the first places that anyone turns to to get information, when I bring up this report, it just starts out with, this is a completely discredited report, and it does cite those two phrases from the NYAS statement that is on their website. Wikipedia can be rewritten, however, by people going in and making changes. You can contest the information because it's a publicly written online document. 
So one of the steps that might be taken is through WHO and other places as well, and other individuals as well, to go on Wikipedia and go through the process of contesting that content and coming up with the contradictions to it. So at least your voice is represented when people bring up the book. Is that something that has been tried yet? I don't think it has, but but believe me, Libby, I have been wanting to do this for, for two, three years, if not more, and I've even got a file completely ready to try and do it. And we have somebody in our group who's one of these editors of Wikipedia, so he can help us get it in. I absolutely have to do it, and you have refreshed my, my motivation. Terrific. Here's the other thing that I think listeners need to know, and that is I'm in contact with Dr. Jeanette Sherman, who helped facilitate and then edited the English-language version of this book. She has let me know that a free PDF version of the entire book is available online, and I will have the link to that up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 331. And I would strongly urge those individuals of a scientific bent, of a research bent, or just want to educate yourselves to get that book, make your medical teams aware of it, any of your doctors, talk it around, activists talk it around, and let's see how many copies of this we can get into the hands of people who are in decision-making places. Because without understanding the truth about the two worst nuclear disasters that have happened on the face of the planet, and I think Fukushima is much worse than Chernobyl because it's the three facilities instead of the one, we will have a much better chance of changing thinking about the future of nuclear, which, of course, is always being supported by the money and the influence and the PR firms and everything they can throw at the information base online and in the outside world. You're absolutely right that it is available. I think we have it on our site as well. It can be downloaded for free. As our French translation, because our group organized the French translation, and you, you, you're probably aware that there's a Japanese translation. No, I did not. So people need to know that there are PDF copies available of this extremely important book for free in English, French, Japanese, and, of course, the original Russian. These are available on the independent WHO website, which is, just as it sounds, independentwho.org, and click on the link to the books. This is the second time that we have talked and had an yep. interview for Nuclear Hot Seat. And here for the second time, you are providing us with brilliant, complex information that is crucial to our understanding of the actual impact on health of these nuclear disasters. And without the understanding of what can go wrong as a result of them, it's very difficult to change policy. So you have granted us a tremendous store of information. And for that and all the work you have been doing for all these years, Alison Katz, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much to you, Libby, and for all the work you do. Alison Katz of Independent WHO. We'll have a link up to the group's website, as well as direct links to download free PDFs of the book, Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, available in English, Japanese, French, and German. Activist shout-out! 
Beyond Nuclear, also known as Beyond Nuclear International, has been putting together a series of handbooks on cornerstone nuclear issues, parsing the information into easily understood language. The first two are available. They are on climate change, just in time for COP24, and radiation and health. You can get them for free in downloadable and ebook format at beyondnuclearinternational.org. There are also printed books available for sale. Here's the thing. I spoke with Linda Pence Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. We started out by discussing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that morphed into a talk about getting those books on the desks of every incoming Democratic congressperson as they start their first two-year terms. The goal is to have them not make the mistake of falling for nuclear industry propaganda and confusing nuclear with genuinely clean, green, sustainable energy generation. That's because, as we all know, nuclear is as deadly and dirty as an energy source can be. So Beyond Nuclear is planning a hill drop, meaning Capitol Hill, to bring over physical printed books and put them on the desk of every new congressional Democrat and some of the more established ones as well. They also suggest that constituents of these new congresspeople send the books directly to their representatives, as it could have much more impact coming from someone in a position to vote or not vote for them in the future. It's an important goal, and they and we need your help in achieving it. These books cost about $4 each just to print, meaning $8 per congressperson without any costs included for postage or handling. Beyond Nuclear could, of course, use some funding to cover the printing of more handbooks, and you can get information about that by contacting beyondnuclearinternational.org. So let's harness the power of the blue wave to support nuclear sanity and a clear understanding of the risks we already face without more funding being slapped down by Congress from our tax dollars to support nuclear pipe dreams, propaganda, and lies. And we will have more on this in a discussion with Linda Pence Gunter in a future show. Here's today's final thought. When I first started Nuclear Hot Seat more than six years ago, the one and only nuclear story in most people's minds was Fukushima. They, and to a large part I, were unaware or unconcerned with any other aspect of the nuclear issue. And the early programs of Nuclear Hot Seat reflected this attitude. When I went out into the world and tried to talk about anything nuclear, people's eyes would glaze over, and even my best friends would politely excuse themselves from my company. Nobody wanted to know. And even interest in Fukushima faded after only a few months, if not weeks. Now, nuclear news is everywhere, and only a little of it is good. For every encouraging development, like the international campaign against nuclear weapons winning the Nobel Peace Prize. There are dozens of news stories on the progress towards nuclear war, propaganda on the winnable, big quotes around that word, advantage of a limited, even bigger quotes around that one, limited nuclear war. As Bullwinkle J. Moose would say, limited nuclear war? That's a contradiction in terms. And all the bad news about rollbacks of rules, regulations, legislation, policy, even worse, 
with few exceptions. The mainstream media is obeying and promoting this drumbeat towards war with North Korea like they're in a synchronized marching unit backed up by a military band. If there's any good news in all of it, it's that people have finally awakened to the fact that, yes, there are more than 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world on high alert with possibly failing computer infrastructures, the entire manufacturing supply chain of nuclear materials from uranium mining to distribution of radioactive waste over ever-growing masses of the planet under the guise of decontamination or dilution, both impossible once you understand what nuclear materials do and how radioactive contamination spreads, and all the other bits and pieces of nuclear awfulness in between. What we as a people are awakening to is horrific information about how we have been duped for the last 40-plus years to believe that nukes are good and perhaps even clean, green, and sustainable, when the only thing sustainable about nuclear is the devastating, life-altering nature of its waste. Yes, now we have information, and with it comes the ability to act. So what can we do? Well, for a start, talk about it. Raise questions. Discuss issues. Fill yourself in on the information by listening to back episodes of Nuclear Hot Seat to start figuring out the many aspects of the nuclear issue or just the parts that are of interest or concern to you. Bring this information up at meetings, be it with your elected representatives, the PTA, your spouse and kids at the dinner table, or the person standing next to you in the checkout line. It's the future we're talking about, folks, and our ability to have it with safety and health for all future generations. We have been gamed into not paying attention to nuclear matters or being convinced that eh, it's not that bad or some variation of the out of sight, out of mind, what you can't see won't hurt you thinking that the nuclear industry depends upon. They work hard to manipulate perception to support their position, backed with endless money and slick shills and unconscionable actions. You heard of many of them in the program today. That's why we need every one of you, you good people who are hearing this, to step forward. Every one of you are potentially a carrier of this information, this awareness. So speak nuclear truth to power. If everyone pitches in, we still have a chance to turn this thing around. And I gotta tell you, these days, when I mention nuclear hot seat and the work that I've been doing, I no longer get glazed looks and people trying to run from me. After eyes widen and the blood drains from their faces, they lean in, ask questions. They want to know. Everyone wants to know. And not just the mainstream media-approved, government-approved, nuclear industry-pre-approved party line. And I tell them. And I send them to my website and this show. And from there, hopefully, to the larger international movement to stop nuclear in all its many forms. And this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 4th, 2018 be in time. Only one way to find out and to do nothing is to let 
and ugly inevitable happen. There are lots of suggestions on how to take action up on the website just about every week. So go to nuclearhotseat.com, look, find one action to take, and then take it. And then the next day, take another and another every day. That's how the world will change. That's how we will change the world for the better. And it's the only way that it's going to happen. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 4th, 2018. A big shout out to all of you Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers. You're the ones who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of real truth and supporters of nuclear awareness that you are. Thank you for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog page on Facebook. All of you, be sure to drop by, click like, comment on the episodes, post, and share. And a footnote to Counterpunch. If you are again planning to rip off this Nuclear Hot Seat interview with Allison Katz, as you did the last one, I give you permission to do so with my blessing, as long as, within the article itself, you attribute your sourcing to Libby Halevi, Nuclear Hot Seat, and NuclearHotSeat.com. Then it's not a ripoff. You are just citing your sourcing. Back to you, the listeners. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates that carry Nuclear Hot Seat, contact me with their info or have them contact us by sending an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. That's especially true if they are with the Pacifica Network, because all 250 stations now receive Nuclear Hot Seat as part of their audio port platform, making it available as a full-length program for their site or as something to excerpt in their news and public information programs. If you have a Pacifica affiliate in your area, please contact them and alert them to the fact that they can now get this show. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2018. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that there is no such thing as a limited nuclear war. The effects are limitless and last forever on this, the one planet that we all share. Okay, you've just had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.